Every person that I've spoken to on this podcast has taught me something new. I've enjoyed every single conversation and every single conversation has been different. My aim was to end the stigma surrounding mental health and I believe that as a society we're slowly getting there. There's still a lot of work to do though. In this episode we chatted about social anxiety, health anxiety and a few other things that had a spotlight shone on them during the pandemic. My guest was that easy to chat to that we have chatted a couple of times since and I hope many times in the future too. I'm Richard Sefton and this is the State of Mind with Richard Sefton podcast. Reach out, I'm on Twitter at Richard Sefton 3 or if you feel the need that you need to speak to somebody in a more urgent capacity, please remember the Samaritans are on 116123. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. Joining me today is journalist, author and presenter Matthew Stadlin. I've followed Matt on Twitter and watched him on shows for some time now and I always like what he has to say. I'm hoping to find out much more today. So Matthew, how are you? Oh, do you prefer Matthew or Matt? Whichever you like. Matthew, how are you? <laughs> I'm really good. I'm very good, thank you, yes. Busy weekend nesting with my new wife, my new heavily pregnant wife. Oh. and trying to get everything in place before the baby's born in September. September. What? What's your due date? 22nd. So is that Libra? Virgo? Actually, that's a very good question. I've never really been into star signs. All I know is that I'm Sagittarius. I think that's Virgo, just. I think it changes on the 23rd to Libra. But then, I, but I, I'm, I'm not massively into star signs. I used to keep sheep on Russell Grant's land, though. So oh, should, wow, that's, that's a claim to fame. <laughs> By the way, you said that you, you always like what I have to say on Twitter. It can't be always. I mean, I put out a poll the other day, which was rather narcissistic, but mm-hmm. slightly intending to provoke my trolls. And I said, what percentage of my tweets do you agree with? I, 100%, I, 75%, 50%, or 25%? And basically, I had 1,000 replies saying, why don't you put 0%? <laughs> I voted 100% because I saw no, that poll. I did, I did, I did. And I thought, mm, slight, maybe I don't see all your tweets, but you know, <laughs> yes. I thought I'll put it anyway because I thought, yeah, he's on the podcast next week. I don't want him to see that I haven't put that. Very good. <laughs> I should have just lied and said, yeah, I should have just put at the bottom, yeah, where's the, where's the 0% like everyone else? <laughs> um, now, you're used to doing interviews, looking back at your career. So is it weird when you're on the other side? I've sort of in the last couple of years become a political pundit I guess mm-hmm. so I'm quite used to talking about politics and being asked questions about politics one thing I find quite tricky and have done since leaving my LBC show in 2020 is being confined to the time given to me by other presenters so when you host your own show it mm-hmm. really is your own show and although I was absolutely keen to listen to as many and diverse views as possible I was in control so I have to learn to shut up when I'm being interviewed on TV particularly (laughs) when the ad breaks are coming (laughs) the the time constraints yeah no no yeah because you listen to I don't know James James is back today James O'Brien I've just been listening to him earlier and he just waffles on and waffles on I, I say waffle I absolutely love what he has to say um but you know he goes on well past the breaks and you think okay yeah like like you've just said it's his show why not why not um do you miss that do you miss lbc yeah enormously love lbc um i i think i started tuning in about 2016 <laughs> i don't know what was happening around then to pique my interest what but, could um... possibly have happened in <laughs> summer 2016 early 2016 summer yeah no it's it's interesting isn't it because mm. over the last couple of days we were recording this just after those enormous queues at dover and brexiteers are wanting to blame the french and remainers are wanting 
to blame Brexit and the truth is probably somewhere in between. In between, yeah. Yeah. And that's what um, I, I think. I mean, I'm good friends with Ian Dale and I, that's what I was trying to say to him uh, the other week with the airport delays. And he was saying, it, you know, it's not not Brexit. And I was saying it's not just Brexit, but it has to play a, fa- play a factor in, in these things. You well, know, Simon Calder is that travel writer yeah. for The Independent, I think. I used to have him on my show. Uh, we, we rather disagreed in, in our approach to the pandemic early on, I think. But he, he's been staunchly of the view that... Brexit has a, a part to play in this because French authorities have to check, he says, mm-hmm. our passports in a much more assiduous way than they did pre-Brexit because France, the, the British-French border, is now the frontier between Britain and the European Union, which kind of makes sense. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. back to our trip. My wife and I went to Italy in May. It was a beautiful time nice. to go to Tuscany because it was green. It looked like you're, you're from North Wales. It looked like the yeah. rolling hills of Wales, actually, because it was also lush because the heat hadn't kicked in. And I, I'm pretty sure we had our passport stamped, unless I'm imagining it. Well, well, this is what James O'Brien was saying this morning, that they, they kind of have to now because we're only allowed there for a certain amount of time. Yes. So it makes so it makes sense that that it would be that, but um, I mean these aren't these cues are not they're not they're not the first cues they've ever been in no. the south of England, I think. No. And I think someone put up on Twitter, didn't they, a collage of newspaper articles from 2015, 2016, whatever, mm-hmm. of cues there. So it's 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 not necessarily entirely down to Brexit, or it's mm-hmm. not as though this hasn't happened before. But it does make sense that it's going to take longer for people to be processed. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, Simon Calder actually to, to name check him again. He came up with quite a witty thing. He said, "Leaving the EU makes it harder to leave the UK." Well, I, 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 I've literally I've just tweeted something to that to that thing. You know, we can't use the airports, we can't use the port. We've truly have ended freedom of movement. <laughs> yes, you know, we're stuck here now. But it means you get to visit places like North Wales. Come, come and say hello, um, Scotland for now. <laughs> but there were, there were huge. There are, it's very true, that, and this may be a, a, a sort of effect of Brexit, but it's certainly an effect of the pandemic. That I think lots of us have come to realise just how beautiful our own islands are. I and mean, I was always, mm. I was always kind of aware, but I was someone who loved to go to France and Italy, and before that, travelled the world. Yeah. I, I'm complete fan of North Mid Wales. It's the most untrendy area of the UK, probably but arguably the most beautiful. My parents have had a place there since 1984. What do you mean the most untrendy, Matthew? (laughs) Well, they're just sheep and you, and when I'm there, me. That's pretty pretty much it, I think. There's nothing to do. They're just rolling hills. See, this is what I love about it. I mean, I lived in London for 13 years and I absolutely love it. It, 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 It will always be... A, a massive part of, of me and who I am and I would go back in a heartbeat if I didn't have the dogs but I also love the complete opposite being in this little village surrounded by people that I love people that you know know me and I know them and I can walk into the shop and say hello and talk to somebody if I want some company you know and I love I love the opposite I love I love I love both sides of that completely um but yeah I love I love so the I, I, I say untrendy it's, it's not an insult it's why it's in my view such a special place because there are very yeah. few people that there, there there's the farming industry mm-hmm. they're, they're not huge numbers of jobs it's it's quite remote mm. given how close it is to the midlands and actually only three and a half hours from london 
Mm. Uh, but there aren't any, there, there isn't much to do. Got, there isn't the coast. I mean, there is the coast. We really go further west. But I'm talking about yeah. these the hilly bits near you, yes, or north. But, <laughs> but there, you know, there isn't, there isn't sailing in that, in the, in the, or there aren't water sports, in the, perhaps a bit on Lake Vernery. Mm. But no, it's, 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 it's quite remote. The only thing I would say about it is it's one of my favorite landscapes, but then a very eco-conscious friend of mine, I think we should all be very environmentally conscious, but he's, he, he rather derides that landscape as a monoculture. And it is true that because it's so intensively farmed for sheep mm. and grazed, that the bird life there isn't perhaps as diverse as it is in other parts of the country. Actually, if you want to go bird watching, and I'm a big bird watcher and photographer, oh, yeah, yeah. you go you go to places where there's lots of water, and the, the southeast or, or, or East Anglia is perfect for that Norfolk I, I, yeah, and stuff. East Anglia is. I've you said by the way about East Anglia. no, it's very flat. It's very flat, and, it's, and therefore to some eyes boring but it's got its own beauty and big skies yeah but, but you you mentioned that you but for the dogs would still live in london we've got two cocker spaniels working cockers mm. and i was not a dog person at all until i met my wife <laughs> and i ab not only absolutely love these two boys but also now mm. kind of look at other dogs and think wow they're sweet but <laughs> we're 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 adjusting because having cockers in a cat in, in the capital city yeah. when they're so energetic does definitely pose challenges yeah i mean my my lab is a uh he's a he's an essex boy i got him from romford when i lived down there he's 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 an old man now he's 11 Sweet. um but he's 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 my baby um but he and, and he absolutely he's fine down there he loves the tube because he gets like petted by loads of people and stuff like that he's he's a little city boy but when he's up here he loves to run so if i can just take him to a mountain just one oh, opposite just, just let him off and he just goes and exercises and it keeps him really he's a chocolate lab so he, but he's a really skinny one really slim he's so energetic he's always swimming always running up and down mountains and he kind of keeps me sort of fit uh, funny enough when you said um untrendy earlier <laughs> the first thing i did was look at what i was wearing <laughs> oh am i trendy no i'm not i'm sat here in some uh, straight from the gym shorts and a old t-shirt like this is audio skin. only fortunately for both of us but <laughs> it had it not been for me move pushing our time slot back after a visit to the midwife <laughs> you, you you would you wouldn't have gone to the gym so you've I got wouldn't. me to thank for that no but it is good job that it's audio only because when i did india willoughby last year uh on the podcast um I was just wearing my pants, which I was open with her about. <laughs> and she was like, oh, let's see, I'm, I'm imagining this. And I was like, well, it's a good job it's audio only because you don't want to see it. But, um, of, course, yeah. of course, with the video during the pan pandemic, lots of people, I think, didn't have much on beneath the, the Zoom line. No, exactly. Funny enough, though, I would love to be interviewing people uh, like your good self face to face on TV or anything like that. Any tips? Um, tips, just... <laughs> get me there. <laughs> tips. I, I used to do a... A, a, an interview series for the BBC for about five years called Five Minutes With, where I interviewed famous mm. people with a, a giant alarm clock. Have you seen any of them? I've not seen any of them actually. I've read about it. Richard, you have. It's, they're all available online, yeah. or most of them are. And it was such good fun. I interviewed 220 famous people. Amazing. From all sorts of different walks of life and different areas of celebrity life, I guess. But not, not all of them were sort of celeb celebs by any means. I mean, that means there were sort of. Martin Amis one minute, Elle McPherson the next. It was a really good and eclectic mm -hmm. mix. And the way I did it, I think, was by showing them, these people, that 
I kind of wasn't afraid of their fame and that I saw myself as their equal intellectually and as a human being, as of course we all are. We're all mm -hmm. human beings, we all matter the same. But I also, I think, made them feel good about themselves in the build-up. So it showed interest in them. Now you can do that with anyone. We should all show interest in each other because everyone loves to, I think, feel that others are interested in them. This was and the ethos of this of this podcast, really, to, to, to show interest in each other during the pandemic and, and, and just... Um, take down those barriers like you've just said and know that you can speak to whoever you want and you're just as good as anyone else you don't have to put on airs and graces and I, I really don't how, how was it to set up your own podcast because I've in my career always kind of piggybacked on big brands say the Telegraph when I wrote there or the BBC or LBC or whatever I was doing and I haven't kind of set up something of my own I set up stuff within big organizations like that five minutes with series I was kind of entrepreneurial mm -hmm. within the BBC what's it like doing it yourself how's it gone um scary but I did have a lot of help from Mr Ian Dale I have to say um but it, but it was scary doing it because because I, I am sat on my own um like I say I completely new to to speaking to people that I see on TV and stuff like that or here on the radio or you know my favorite singer Beverly Knight and completely new to all that however I just found that it's just like like you've just said you're just having a conversation with a normal person and we put these things in our head these plinths that we that we stand these people on but they, we don't need to put them there because the, everyone that I speak to are really nice genuine down to earth I don't know I've not spoken to um Leonardo DiCaprio or anyone like that so maybe they're not but I would imagine that everyone is just on their own level a nice down-to-earth person that wants to chat about life and that's what it's been so far uh, and um, it irritates me when they're not and most people I think when they're interviewed most people want to put their best foot forward yeah. so they're aware of how important it is to come across well and to engage when people have a high view of themselves whether they're famous or not it's so off-putting I, I want to ask you quickly about the technical side though like was it difficult setting it up like editing it getting all the tech stuff done and then promoting it without a big platform behind you do you know what i thought it would be because i'm so not technical minded um if i need anything doing i normally ask my older brother because he's he's a whiz on computers and always has been um but no it was it's really simple i <laughs> shouldn't say that should I am doing myself down it's so difficult no I literally <laughs> plug in a mic use this this website send you a link and then it records straight away um and then to upload really easy really easy um I'll tell you later we'll start a podcast together okay uh, <laughs> listen you know we I mentioned the dogs and I, yeah. I and I said how much I love them now and I know we're supposed to be talking about mental health we and my wife that. said to me yesterday that she thinks that the dogs have done wonders for my mental health uh-huh and Absolutely. i just thought it was quite interesting because they, they they give you an opportunity to love something beyond yourself to be involved in something beyond yourself mm -hmm. take you out of your own mind mm -hmm. and if you're someone like i have been in the past where your thoughts go round and round and you suffer from anxiety and ocd mm -hmm. it's really really helpful to be responsible for and to be around other beings as I say, you can I think sort of trans. Look, I'm not a mental health expert, as I say that at the outset. But my experience is, I think possibly sort of transfer out of yourself mm. that excess intellectual or pseudo intellectual energy, and and also just the physicality of it, having cuddles with yep. them and running them and being 
active with them. There's actually, I think, scientific studies to show that stroking a dog um, calms you down. I suppose it stands to reason. It calms you down, helps with your mental health. But like you say as well, there's the exercise element of it, getting you out in nature. Even if um, due to, I don't know, physical difficulties, even if you can only go in your back garden or something like that, yeah. at least you're getting out, you're listening to the birds, you're you're watching your dogs play, you're getting love off your You're feeling that love, you feel that love. And you always have someone to talk to. And they're not going to judge you, which is basically a counsellor's role, you know, to sit there, listen non-judgmentally. And, and, and that's what a dog does. And being responsible as well. I think I remember when I was a, a boy, I'd probably be quite scared if I was left alone. But if I was looking after my youngest brother, who was seven years younger, mm. I didn't feel scared because suddenly I was in a position where I was responsible for his safety. Mm-hmm. So the focus wasn't on me. It was on him. I wonder if that's like driving a car when you're in the driver's seat. I always feel that I feel less scared or less nervous rather. Yeah, that, that may be about, or, or, and possibly about control as well. Certainly I'm a, not a very <laughs> good <me>. passenger. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, actually, I don't mind being, a, I love driving, so I tend to drive everywhere. So if I do get the chance to be a passenger now, I'm like, I'm lounging out. Um, I've got all my like, coffee and my snacks around me. I look, quite like being a passenger nowadays. I do like driving there, but I wonder if that's a similar thing there. Like you say, it's about control, um, but also that that sense of responsibility. Um, I, I'm the middle child, but whenever mum was out, um, I was the one in charge because both of my brothers, my older and younger, were, were very much um, um, lads, basically. Immature Funny. lads. I, I was the oldest of three brothers. I still am and probably <laughs> thought I was in control or in charge, but I'm not sure I ever really was. So one was seven years younger than you. What about the other one? Two years younger than me. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's close to ours because Matthew's two years older than me and Andrew's six years younger than me. Um, yeah, similar, very similar. Yeah, but I do tell everyone that I'm the youngest. And um, sadly for Andrew, a lot of people believe that. <laughs> <laughs> it's audio only, but so people can't see, but, you know, I've got good skin. Very good skin. Yeah, I'm surprised you're 40. I couldn't believe it. Oh, God, I let that out of the bag. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. Do you know, I didn't mind turning 40. It was 30 that I had a problem with. But 40, I was fine with. But since mum's diagnosis last year, I've, I've been saying yes to as many things as I can. If anyone says anything to me, I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And then I worry afterwards. And also, I'm now seeing age as a privilege. You know, it, 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 the alternative's much worse. So I'd rather Yeah, there's no, there's no point in fighting age, but I think there is a point in continuing to live life to the full and as mm. usefully as you can. Interesting, you said about 30. I was, I, I think life became quite good for me at 30 because in yeah. my, a lot of my 20s, I was quite insecure about my looks, how I came across to women. And when I turned 30, I, I was by that stage much more self-confident. I was on TV a lot. I'd grown into my skin mm. and things felt kind of like they were slotting into place. By the time I got 40, I was going through divorce I hadn't had children at that stage, mm-hmm. and I think I probably felt a little bit out of kilter, a little bit behind where quite a lot of my peer group were. And feeling out of sync with your contemporaries can be quite an anxiety-inducing, not a, not a big anxiety, not in a mental health way, I don't think, for me, but, but, but certainly on a sort of social level, mm-hmm. made me feel like I'd fallen a bit behind. I was very, very lucky that I met my now wife when I did and that we're having a baby because now I kind of feel like I'm in sync again which is not to say that 
there's anything wrong with not having children and no. there's you know nothing wrong with having children later and there are there should be no norms i think exactly i think what 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 i think what came across then is your instinct for you exactly you're, you're, yes and i'm not trying to speak to for others yeah. yes exactly no, no certainly because, not. because i was the opposite of that when i was 30 that's the sort of things i was struggling with i was like god i don't have a mortgage i don't have kids still don't have kids but you know um I, i'm not married I, it, all of those sort of things I, I don't have a career that i'm proud of and now i'm 40 i've kind of got that i'm doing the counseling in the day i'm doing the podcast in it whenever i'm doing the i'm in a band and i do that at the weekends i'm doing things that i enjoy life's life to me now is about enjoying it and and being able to fund that as well so so i'm in a much better place now they say and that's good to hear they say there's and i don't know who they are but that there are three big planks in life i think your sort of private life your home and your work mm. and for a while i i had two of those sort of slightly out of joint of work struggles and private life struggles and lucky enough to have a roof over, my own roof over my head. Now I'd say I've got two of those three. So I've got my private life going really well and happily and still got the roof over my head. But my career is, is tricky right now because the path that I took was freelance and it, it wasn't following an established path. And, and, and it, I've had such a sort of varied working life from program editing and producing on this week with Michael Portillo, Diane Abbott and Andrew Neal for a long wow. time coming up as I said entrepreneurially with my own ideas with the help of others like five minutes with at the BBC on the road with a documentary series at the BBC where I spent a day or two in the life of interesting public figures yeah. when I left the BBC I got a column at the Telegraph, Matthew Stadlin interview and interviewed people there and mm -hmm. then did four years at LBC as a radio host, done hundreds of events on stage interviewing well-known people like Michael Caine. So it's been a really mixed, interesting, fun career to the point where we've been trying to clear out junk from the house before Laura moves her stuff in. And I've got all these DVDs of my old five minutes with series and on the roads with series. And that, that they started or they finished like, you know, a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And, that, and that, that felt like a real career when I was doing it and felt exciting and dynamic and high profile, big platform, millions of viewers. And that's a distant memory almost. And I, so I have to keep inventing, reinventing myself. And where I'm at at the moment feels like a bit of a dead end. And it's quite scary. My dad was a, a barrister and then a QC mm. and then a judge. And even he, as he was barrister of the year, he also record for the longest speech in English and Welsh legal history. I'll ask you to guess that later if I remember. And yet even he would often wonder when a case came to an end whether he'd ever get another job. Oh, wow, okay. So, so, so but for, for, for me, because there isn't the structure of being a barrister, that you get that feeling times 100 and yeah. at the moment, I'm in a position where I'm thinking, am I going to leave the media? Am I going to go and do something completely different? And in trying to work out what that is, as well as being quite insecure making, I'm also trying to ask myself the right questions. Like, we are in a world at the moment that is facing, in my view, not just my view, but the, it's the scientific consensus, whatever the deniers say, mm. is we're facing climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about my next steps, I'm asking myself, can I do something that is helpful to that can i can i try to make the world a little bit better i'm the net zero week interviewer so i'm already involved in that but what can i do to best 
help those around me and how can I best use what talents I may or may have mm. so it's a it's a quite an important point for me in my life and it's 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 difficult and challenging yeah but it sounds very interesting just um touching on on you brought up your dad there you you have a very influential family don't you I did. I mean, I don't know if this is true, but great, great, great uncle. My great, great, great uncle was Johann Strauss, who composed the Blue Danube, was the master of the waltz. I mean, he wow. Used, yeah, he was. He, I think he used to babysit. He babysat my grandmother, with whom I was incredibly close. He, he babysit her father in Vienna. Oh, like wow. my, my grandparents were refugees from Hitler, mm. and my grandfather was a. He was a concert pianist, and he premiered the Weber and the Variations in pre-war Berlin. They all managed to get out, mm. and then he became that same grandfather. Something went wrong with his fingers. He became the chief music critic at the Telegraph. No link to the fact that I later, after he died, worked there. On my on my mother's side, and my grandmother was an amazing woman. She went during the she she was at Cambridge, studied under Wittgenstein, got a first. And we all had a, we had a sort of almost a triple degree ceremony when I graduated. Just after I, I graduated, my grandmother picked up her degree because they weren't allowed to get degrees in those days, women. So she got oh. picked up hers. My dad picked up his MA because he'd been at Cambridge as well on the same day. And I think I dressed up in my gown or whatever and the Express did a story about us. But she was an amazing woman and she went to help try and get rid of the, 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 the British Empire in the late 30s, I think, early 40s. In, oh in what was then Ceylon, but now Sri Lanka. And so she's a very brave and impressive person. Now, my, I suppose my, da- my mum's side, her, her father, he won, a, he won the military cross in the war. He was one of Field Marshal Montgomery's aide de camp. He was a major in the British Army. He worked his way up from peeling potatoes as a private. He went on to be High Master of St Paul's and Second Master at Winchester and so forth. So he was a teacher, so he was quite influential. Mm-hmm. My godfather is Adam Rusbridger, because just by chance he was my, he's one of my dad's closest friends and... He turned up at France, in France, uninvited when I was about two, and I was crying all day, and he came as my godmother's boyfriend, uh-huh. and he stopped me crying immediately, and so he became my, he was made my godfather. So he's, <laughs> so he's, he's, I remember when my dad gave him a mock interview when he was running to be deputy editor, or maybe even then editor of The Guardian in the mid-90s. So that, you know, so I've been around, I guess, you know, we have family friends with Martin Wolf, who's the FT columnist, so I've always been around you know, I guess success. And Mm. I probably always had quite high expectations of myself. And I don't know whether that fed my desire to be in the public eye and, and make an impact in, in the political world. I'm not sure, but certainly success was something that was kind of part of my early life. I wouldn't say we're an influential family, though. Oh, it certainly sounds much more influential than mine. (laughs) Sorry, family. (laughs) No, I don't know about that. My brothers are very successful. They they they're both entrepreneurs, and they're you know they're they're doing incredibly well. That's because you looked after quite, them. Yeah, I'm not sure they'd argue the same. But I I I I would never I've never comp- competed with them. Well, I certainly did when I was a boy with the with the brother who was closer to me. But I never competed with them. And then I've always been motivated by doing what I what makes me tick, what I'm passionate about. Yeah. See that's that's funny because I'm I I always thought that because I'd never had money that's why I wasn't motivated by it as such, um, but you've kind of dipped in and out and and you're still not motivated by it. No, I I'm now especially especially having a 
boy, baby boy on the way. I'm, I'm certainly motivated by earning enough to make life not tricky. But I'm not, I'm not motivated by money in the sense that I've got no ambitions to get a flash car. I mean, of course, if you did have a nice big car that was environmentally friendly, that would be helpful. But it's not something I lust after or desire. Mm. And I'm lucky enough with our home. You know, I, 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 I think my only kind of spending thing is to eat is like I like to eat out a bit, not not expensively, although it's all relative. I like to eat out a bit, and McDonald's. that's it. I'm not someone who what, not McDonald's. I'm not someone who wants to have a crew a crew things. Like if you burgled my house, there'd be nothing to burg, nothing to steal apart from my laptop and your DVDs of uh, five minutes with and my DVDs of five minutes with exactly, which I need to take. I mean, in fact, I have been burgled twice. Goodness, have you really? But, yeah, yeah, uh, and and that wasn't much fun. And no, no, I mean, I was out at the time. Luckily for the burglars, and no, I'm joking. And, and but you know what, though, you are quite a big guy. You're quite tall, aren't you? I was quite surprised. I'm a bit, I'm a bit Friday, heavy at the moment. Yeah, we did at Ian's party. I'm you're six foot three. I when mm. I was at LBC, I was about 15, 15 and a half stone. I think I'm <laughs> seventeen, well, seventeen shorter. stone now. That was a short. <laughs> I'm seventeen stone, Rich. Can you believe that? No, I can't actually. That's a lot. Because you just looked tall. I do lift weights. Do you? Me too. Well, this my rec- my record on to. the. Do you do the bench press? No, I I don't know what I do. <laughs> do these machines? <laughs> the well, machines. the bench press <laughs> is something that I'm quite proud of. I think I did 115 kg on the bench press. So if oh, you think that, hell. how 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 many kgs do you weigh? I do. I weigh 80 80.3 or something like that. Okay, so I weigh about 108. But imagine me. Imagine lifting on your chest, an an additional seven kilometers to me lifting it. It's quite a lot. Well, yeah. <laughs> but something you may not have noticed, Richard, is that I've got a huge number of trolls and enemies on Twitter, right? Yeah, so, but, you know. so they, they call me the Street Fighter or Rocky because <laughs> I mentioned once that I've been trained in street fighting, and they just could not—they could not stop laughing. And I once put up a video of me training, which I thought was quite impressive. And, and yeah. I think, for, but the, the, my trolls did not think it was impressive. They thought I looked like completely useless. Do you know what? I love how you own them and call them your trolls. <laughs> <laughs> They're very personal to me. Yeah. <laughs> like Lady Gaga has her fans, her monsters, or whatever. I think she calls them her monsters. Her monsters. Well, what did wrong, what did my wife call? She hates Twitter, and she what did she say about the people? She she calls them monsters. I think monsters or devils behind keyboards, which I think is. <laughs> I'm always curious. Are the people who send really vile stuff online? Are they like that anyway? And this just gives them an an, an area, a, a platform to 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 be nasty on? Or does mm. Twitter does Twitter make them who they're not? Does it bring out stuff that they wouldn't you know isn't isn't really part of them? I would imagine there's a mixture, and I would imagine that um, a lot of the well, be, be, the ones that I would imagine show their faces, use their names, which are very few and far between if they're being nasty and vile and racist or transphobic or homophobic or whatever, they, they always seem to have a, a, a an avatar of something. Yes. Um, I won't say what it normally is because I'll have a lot of people saying, oh, no, don't, don't stereotype or whatever. But it, it's normally a certain football club uh, motif or a player from that certain football club. And... Um, and they don't give away any any details. I would imagine that they're probably nice as pie or meek and mild or whatever in real life. And this is their their chance to get out what they hold in normally. 
Whereas the ones that show who they are, show their faces, like I say, are few and far between, possibly just as nasty in real life. While we're talking about Twitter stuff and Twitter wars, something that really has fascinated me in recent months, since I've kind of properly engaged with it, and I should have engaged with it while I was at LBC, I found it a very difficult area, is the, the, the trans versus women, so-called versus women's rights mm. debate. Exactly so. And that's an incredibly difficult area because yeah. my instinct at the beginning was people are, women and men are using trans versus women's rights, such as changing rooms, as a fig leaf simply to hide their transphobia. Mm. And the idea that, that trans rights are sort of the final fling of the patriarchy seemed to me terribly misguided. Because mm -hmm. if you're born into the wrong body, the idea that you're some sort of intrinsic threat to society or to women seems to be completely absurd. Mm. Like it's, 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 it's bad luck to be born into the wrong body mm -hmm. because it involves a lot of effort to correct that. Yeah. So, but then I sort of tried to listen harder to the other so-called other side and I've talked to some women who feel that they they are quite concerned about their private spaces. And mm -hmm. it's difficult being a man having views on this because our spaces are not up for grabs here in, in a way that makes yeah. us fearful because we tend to be physically stronger than women. And I've tried, as I say, to listen to both sides, but... I remember the, the, the grid girls debate, and I, I did talk a lot about that at LBC, and that earned me a lot of trolls. And that was when we were talking about whether grid girls should no longer be used by Formula One. And I argued that they shouldn't, because it sent out a misogynistic view of the world. It kind of trivialized women as bit part players, as sort of bits on the side. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you had a lot of men who would who were desperate to maintain the status quo, which was to have attractive women in the grids. Mm. And they would blame, they would say that I was trying to do women out of jobs. So it was entirely disingenuous on their part, yeah. I think. And we're spinning into sort of similar territory with the trans issues, because I think a lot of people are just straightforwardly transphobic, the sort of people who are homophobic in the 80s and 90s, and perhaps yeah. still are, are using these... This this battleground of this clash of rights. What could as, be a legitimate as a, argument, sort of thing. Yes, as a, as a sort of fig leaf. Yeah, a fig leaf just to vent their transphobia. Yeah. And I think the victims in all of this are are trans women because the nasty side of the trans activism, I think, is probably largely done by people who aren't actually themselves trans. Mm -hmm. And so you just end up with trans people being vilified by people who call themselves feminists, mm -hmm. who often, I suspect, are transphobic. Now, some, it is also true that you don't want to eradicate the truth, you don't want to eradicate biology, and that mm -hmm. women have fought very hard, rightly, for a very long time, for their rights. Mm -hmm. So the, I, I can see why women are, some women are concerned that their biological identity is being erased. You've got to be able to say that a woman is a woman. You've got to be able to say that biology is immutable because my understanding of biology is that it is. But is How... this, are these things happening though? I, 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 I kind of put them with the, you know, oh, Muslim people want to ban Christmas and then you can't find one Muslim person that actually does want to ban, ban Christmas. No. I do have, a, I do wonder, are, are these things real? 
Are there people so saying these things? I, I've tried to get a sense of whether women go around, the women I know go around fearing that a trans person is going to be changing in their change rooms. Mm. And it's quite difficult to find that. You do feel, you, I have spoken to at least one, well, I think one person who was disconcerted about that. Specifically the, you know, the, the terminology that they're saying is disappearing. You can't call a mother-to-be a mother-to-be and stuff like that. I think that. it's about I headlines. Think, do, can, with, you, can you not? People, people who menstruate are sort of unhelpful headlines, I think. Yeah, because I don't think that, I, that's, that's the thing that I think is the Muslims want to ban Christmas headline. It, it doesn't actually exist. It, 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 I think, in my opinion, I don't think that exists or not it was a headline scale more than it, one no, or two not, people. no it was a headline but i can see why you want to kind of nip that in the bud because i can see why that is offensive to women mm. but i yeah I, I it's it's become a lightning rod for so-called culture wars yeah and you know keir starmer being asked by nick ferrari on lbc whether Repeatedly. a woman can have a penis is is i think unhelpful now that doesn't mean you don't need to have an answer for it did you I hear think... emily thornberry's answer to that no what did she say she said i don't know i don't look up their skirts and i just thought that was brilliant <laughs> <laughs> that is very good i think my answer would be i think my answer would be and, and it's not without its difficulties that a woman cannot have a penis but a trans woman can have a penis okay now that's not a perfect answer because the whole point of being a trans woman is that you feel that you should be a woman mm-hmm. and therefore but, but what about not a trans being... man because a trans man a trans man doesn't have a penis if if if, if he has transitioned but does have a penis if he hasn't transitioned so i think that's not terribly difficult that one Sorry, a trans man who has, the other way around, Mm -hmm. trans man who has transitioned doesn't, and then a trans Mm -hmm. man who hasn't, sorry, (laughs) let's do it again. A trans man who has transitioned doesn't, and a trans man who hasn't transitioned does. But on the same argument, though, if you were going on the same argument and you were going down the transphobic route Mm. as such, and you were saying women, a woman cannot have a penis, but what about a trans man that now does have a penis? Would you still class him as a woman? Therefore, the woman does have a penis. That would be my argument to them. <laughs> oh, so hang on. So, 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 so either so, way you look at it. So, sorry, I see. So by a trans man, of course, you mean someone who is who is born and is biologically a woman, and but has transitioned transition to a man and now has a penis. And now has a penis. Is yeah. that person a man? Well, and, and, for the people that would say that that's not a man... They yes. would be still saying that's a woman. Therefore, a woman can have a penis in my eyes. I see what you because mean. Yes. Therefore, yeah. whichever way you look at it, you can look at it one way and say no, and you look look at it the other way, and and yeah, a woman in my view. Yeah, that's yes. That, that's a very clever answer. But the problem with that answer is it's it is a very clever answer, and and it, I, it's rather tempting to use that against transphobic people. I'm not sure it quite gets us around the issue of the. Does it, can a woman have a penis? Mm. Do you think saying that a, a trans woman, so someone who has transitioned to a from from being a but biologically and born a man to become a woman, a trans woman, yeah. uh, who who no, someone who hasn't yet, I suppose, isn't it? Okay. But, but the the, pro- the problem, the problem, the yes, that that the, this all raised its head partly because it came over from America and partly because of this the, the potential for a change in the law about self-ID. And you can see that that prima facie could feel threatening to some women. The idea that you or I could suddenly say, okay, we are a woman and we can go and avail ourselves of female spaces. Mm -hmm. Now, it's highly, highly unlikely that a sexual offender is going to go and 
I th- it's highly unlikely in my view, commit a sexual offence in a female space because there will be other people around there. Mm. If you'll go, the sexual predators, to, I would imagine, tend to act in private under cover of, of, of darkness, I mean metaphorically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think mm-hmm. so that, to a great extent, I think this is a concocted issue and it does fit into transphobia. What does transphobia mean? It's fear of trans, fear mm-hmm. of trans people. And it is whipped up by nasty people, I think. But so, but I nonetheless can see I can see at first glance that you would be a bit concerned about someone suddenly being able to say you're a, a man saying you're a woman because men are more powerful physically, and there has been a his, long history as ever since we started as human beings of men ruling the roost. So I, mm-hmm. I, I I I do get that, but and that's why I think trans issues have flared up in the way that they have. That's the fundamental reason, and. I think we've got to be, but we've got to be really careful in the language that we use and how we talk about this. Because if you come from a, a space of decency and you come from a space of of benign goodwill to your fellow human beings, then you don't you don't want to ratchet up. You don't want to be mean. You don't want to be angry. So it's about it's about language, about how we treat each other. Just coming back to that question that it had that, that arguably tripped up Keir Starmer. Yeah. And my answer is that a woman, a, a, a woman cannot have a penis, but a, a what, what did I say? A trans woman can. I'm getting so confused. It is. It can be quite confusing. No. Yes. A, 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 tra, a trans. So in other words, a pre-transition trans woman can have a penis. I I, I think that's. I, I I think that is fair enough. I, I think at that stage, I can understand why that person wants to be treated as a woman. But I can also see that saying that that calling that person a trans woman rather than a woman is probably a more helpful way of dealing with this. But I don't know. There are no hard and fast rules. It's a difficult area, isn't it? I, I only wanted to bring this up now because I, I just hope that people can find a kinder way of talking about this mm. and remembering that people who are trans, are, in one sense, can be quite vulnerable because they're born into the wrong body, right? So they are the last well, people that we in, should be mean about. In most cases, if, if you look at suicide rates uh, in the trans community, so much higher. Uh, you know, so that, so vulnerable vulnerability kind of runs through the trans community. And I, that's why I like to be an ally. It doesn't mean in any form that I'm not an ally of women. And I, I you know, I would class myself as a trans ally and a feminist, which has given me some trolls on Twitter. Uh, many times, um, because I I I, th- I think I can be, I can be supportive of both um, communities. Yeah. Just both, ident- both identities. Yeah. Yeah. How how do we get that? <laughs> Let's move I on I, to I, mental I, I health. Deliberately brought, I deliberately brought it up <laughs> because I just I think it needs to have space to be talked about kindly and with mm. respect to people on both sides of the argument, so long as they, they're, they're, you know, they're coming at it with respect and with kindness. Kindness is such a good word, and it's so easy for people to stray from it, and you get unkindness from people on the left and on the right. Oh, God, yeah. you know, It's absolutely not the preserve of one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I've been guilty of it. In fact, I, I should correct the record. I was saying before about people on Twitter that give their name and their face, and they're nasty. Maybe they're nasty in real life. Well, no, because I've been one of those people that's been nasty, uh, nasty defensive... Um, I've certainly used derogative terms, you know, called people idiots and stuff like that. And I show my name and face. So, and I'm a nice person. I really am a nice person. And I try to learn. Every time I do that, I try to, I delete the tweets. And then I, I'm like, no, no, no. 
Calm down. Calm well, down. I found it quite useful recently because I came across some people who were, were being absolutely moronic, you know, in really quite an unpleasant way. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I, I replied saying, you know, this is, you, you are being moronic. And Twitter helped me. It said, are you sure you want to use this phrase or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because normal people don't or something. And I actually didn't go ahead with it. And I mm-hmm. stepped back from it. And that was a very useful tool. No, because yeah, you don't, you don't want, done. you don't want to be guilty of what you accuse others of. Yeah, Twitter's done that to me a hell of a lot of times when talking about Boris Johnson. <laughs> uh, so it's never it's, done me. It's never done that to me with Boris Johnson. I mean, I, anyone who follows me on Twitter, Twitter will know agrees. that I'm not a Boris. Yes, when, when they'll know I'm not a Boris Johnson fan. But I, I always kept it within the within the right parameters, I think. And I never ever mentioned his private life because. And there are others who do. James O'Brien does. I don't think that's right. In terms of the amount of kids and, and his... Whatever his it is. Sort of whatever it is. And I just don't... I refuse to go there because it, I don't think it's my business. Even though it has become public knowledge to an extent, you never know what yeah. goes on behind the scenes. And I think we should be the last to judge anyone else. So I think I can find my... I can find my comments about Johnson to his public facing self and there's mm. plenty to criticize on that yeah absolutely but then like you say the lines have been blurred with the uh, trying to get jobs and stuff for, 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 oh look if if if, 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 like if a public figure and... if a public figure attempts and i'm not saying this to johnson but if a public figure attempts to solicit a job on behalf of their one of their loved ones and uses their public position in order to do that then that is absolutely a crossover between public and private that should be mm. fair game. By the yeah. way, before we leave Twitter completely, I don't know whether you saw, but I got cancelled recently by the anti-cancel culture mob. So I, <laughs> it's always I, the way. It's, it's extraordinary. I'd been tweeting fairly consistently anti-Boris Johnson government tweets and pro-Labour tweets. Mm-hmm. I even said that I was considering becoming a Labour MP. And Do it. I then applied for a job at the BBC and they wanted me to, to do all sorts of stand-in work at BBC Five Live, stand-in for Nolan and it was incredibly, I was honoured to, 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 to be asked to do that because he's a, sort of one of the kings of phone and radio, Stephen Nolan on Radio Five Live. And the BBC withdrew its offer because, well, it was a sequence of events. Tory HQ got in touch with Five Live to say, what are you doing hiring this person and I, I hadn't done anything wrong I not I didn't do anything wrong at all but I hadn't put any anti-Tory tweets out after my appointment I'd simply said on Twitter I'm now going to rejoin the BBC so I'm going to go back to impartiality and when Tory HQ rang up Radio 5 Live Five Live stood behind me but then the pressure became enormous because Guido Fawkes's blog was kind of highlighting my very recent pro-Labour, anti-Tory government tweets. Mm. I was then in the, uh, and, and they withdrew the offer, and, and I was in the Sun Says editorial. I don't know anyone else, personally, who's been in the Sun Says editorial. And I was called in the Sun a, at some point, a, a socialist toff. I was pictured on page seven of the Mail on Sunday, like my, my right-wing enemies, and really went after me. And it was, it was quite exciting at the time, because you're part of a national story and you've done nothing wrong. But... Mm. A week later, when all that excitement died down, you're just left without the gig. And that could have been an incredibly interesting few years, maybe decades, hosting shows at Five Live, which is a great station. Massively yeah. disappointing. Yeah, that's... that's. Um, but like like you say, cancelled by the the anti-cancel cancel culture 
Mark. Yeah, and look, I do understand, of course, the BBC both has to be impartial and seem to be impartial. Mm-hmm. I would have been immaculately professional and impartial. I spent nine years at the BBC. I was a programme editor in BBC Live Political Programme, so I, I know the importance of it. Mm. So I don't think it, the offer should have been withdrawn, but on some level I understand it because the BBC is fighting for its life isn't it and one of the things that that, that is being laser focused on is questions over its impartiality i mean they've always they've always been questions haven't they well for as long as i can remember so i have a a tiny bit of sympathy but overall it's just a great disappointment i need to delete all of my tweets before i um bring back your five minutes with but with me doing the hosting (laughs) don't you dare Then I'll have a load of DVDs to get nicked off me. <laughs> yes. um, let's talk about mental health. Can you remember a time when you struggled with your mental health? I don't have to think back very far. No, it was in 2020, the pandemic happened. As soon as the pandemic started, I knew I was going to be in trouble because I thought, how, how am I going to be able to self-diagnose? How, mm. how am I going to know whether I've got COVID? This was before testing mm-hmm. or when testing was very, very scarce. And so it proved. And I became a hermit for seven months. So didn't touch another human being other than COVID testers who brushed my cheek as they tested me or whatever, doing the PCR test for seven months, really. And I went on very, very distant dating on the South Downs with my now wife, about five metres apart. And I, I was, it was a really, really difficult, challenging, upsetting time. I wasn't remotely worried about getting sick with COVID. I was worried about giving COVID to other people. Okay. I couldn't convince myself, even with testing. And I took, I had about 30, 35 PCR tests, I mean, before the lateral flows came in. Yeah. And I couldn't convince myself that I didn't have COVID. So it, it made it very, very difficult to do my job. And I took a little bit of time off, unsure whether I did have COVID or not. In fact, one test did come back ambiguous. So yeah. unclear. So it's quite possible that I did have it, but it's equally possible that I didn't have it and it was psychosomatic or you were focusing on physical things like a slightly blocked nose in a different way from how you would if there was no public health emergency. So when there's a public health emergency, it's probably not surprising that symptoms are popping up left, right and centre because everyone's focus is on their health. Anyway, I did go back to LBC. I did 200 hours of covid pandemic broadcasting which i was very proud of but it was an mm-hmm. incredible struggle to get into the studio every time i did and oh, I, you actually went in to do it yes and I, I spoke many many times to my poor dad who was in wales at the time in in, in that in my parents place in wales and my mum sort of sheltering from it and i spoke you know sometimes i spoke about six hours a day with him <laughs> trying to convince me that it was morally okay to go into work in the end, my, my, my target was to get to the end of my contract and then leave, and or to get to the end of that part of my contract. And I then did leave, but it was a, it, it was a really, really tough time. And I, I had a, the help of a psychologist throughout it, which probably helped a bit. Mm-hmm. She was great. But then when I left LBC, I thought that would be it, but instead, because I wouldn't have to worry about going in, became this massive drum roll focus because my shows were on Friday night and Saturday night. So as I got to Friday, the the levels of anxiety would just go through the roof. How did did your anxiety sort of show? How did it, what were the signs? Just couldn't stop thinking about whether I had a cough, a new cough or a snivel or a this or a that. And was I going to be able to go to work or was I going to kill the cleaner in the process, you Mm. know, with COVID? 
and and I sort of became paralyzed. I would sort of count down the minutes to when I could get into my car and go to work, and I'd be sort of almost paralyzed in bed. I mean, it was really Were you a really the difficult time. Leicester Square or Westminster? Studio. Leicester Square. Yeah. So, so it was more more people around and a bit busier. It wasn't that. I mean, it was actually like a ghost town when I first went back in May of 2020. No, it wasn't. It, no, it was it was purely about whether I was a risk to others to go mm. into work. That's it. I mean, it took a lot of it took people a long time to realise that I wasn't actually scared of getting sick. Never mm-hmm. been really scared of getting sick. It's all been about infecting other people. So. But once I, you know, I would pace around the studio before going on air, waiting for the countdown but to, 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 to one o'clock when I started my show for her. Because actually once I started, I was pretty much okay. And I did a job and I think I did a very good public service, actually, as I say, which I was proud of. But it was immensely difficult. And my social life, even when we were allowed out in the summer, was completely stalled. I never met anyone other than at some distance in a park. I terrified of coming within two meters of someone i was i was the tests the tests sort of fueled the anxiety rather than rather than relieved them if i left as soon as i'd been tested I'd, I'd say to myself well did i have a little ulcer in my mouth that might have meant that the test didn't work or did did they test me properly or did they brush my tongue before they touched my tonsil i mean thoughts that just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled and spiraled and I was completely obsessed by it. And I'm, I'm someone who loves being on stage, doesn't get stage fright, interviews Michael Caine or John Cleese in front of hundreds of people or Dorf, Richard Dawkins in front of 1800. I was somebody who used to go out every night of the week and play loads of sport and have been to 84 countries and you know all that. So I'm an outgoing mm. person. I love life. So this was the other side of me and it was a really dark, difficult side. And... When I left LBC, I thought, well, the pressure's off, you know. And by the way, it wasn't probably not helped by the fact that my shows were one till five in the morning. Mm-hmm. So you'd go in at about 10 and then you'd, you'd get home at 5.30 or whatever. That wasn't good for my first marriage. It wasn't good for my social life. It wasn't good for my sleep. It was a, quite a disjointed lifestyle. I mean, I'm quite I'm physically strong and, and I'm mentally resilient in many ways. So I did four years of it. But that probably takes its toll, and so not not you know sometimes almost not sleep at all between shows, and that doesn't help anxiety. Anyway, when I left LBC, I thought that's gonna I'm gonna chill, and it's of course I didn't chill, and I just started worrying about other things. Mm-hmm. And in the end, so that was sort of September 2020. In the end, in about December, I finally saw a psychiatrist online. I mean on a Zoom, and he said, "Look, you've got anxiety, you've got OCD. I can help you with this pill or, or whatever." And I and then in January. I still having not started the medication because I was always determined to get through this with talking therapy. Yeah. I eventually said, well, look, it's not fair on me. It's not fair on those around me. I need to, by that time I was going out with my now wife, I need to, which was a huge blessing to meet Laura during all this. And she was amazing and the dogs, but I thought I've got mm-hmm. to, I've got to take this now, try it at least. And I took it and I think it was probably a rocky beginning to it, a bit rocky. Yeah. But it has transformed my life, I feel. I mean, you, you, you never quite know that, that whether there's a placebo effect going on, but it, it's really, really helped me, this pill. It's an anti, it's a thing usually used for anti-depression probably, but I, I used it as an anti-anxiety or anti-OCD or both drug. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to 
England football matches again and cricket matches again and I've just got married with 200 people in a church and my life is just completely back on track in terms of functioning and it's just been a sort of eureka thing for me and I kind of probably think well why didn't I try that earlier I wrote a piece in the Telegraph in 2015 about my anxiety and about how I'd sought the help of psychologists and that felt like quite a big decision to do Mm. but then there was such a bigger stigma for me about actually going on a medication a drug Mm -hmm. and I was worried about am I going to feel am I not going to know why I'm feeling what I'm feeling you know, is it, is, is it sort of diminishing of me to, to have to use a drug? Because I've never taken recreational drugs in my life. So I, coming to terms with that was quite difficult. And then once I had started it, I thought, right, the only way to do about this, deal with this, is and to make it feel okay to me, is to talk about it. And I'm a very open person, really. And I, I talked and talked about it and wrote a, a piece that kind of went viral in the New Statesman, where I talked about it. And that helped me come to terms with the fact that I was on it. So I'm now very, very relaxed about telling anyone that I'm taking medication. And as I say, it's really turned my life around. There is a sort of caveat. And again, I just don't know whether this is down to the drug or not. Mm. But, well, first of all, I, I, put on a, I felt I put on a lot of weight. So when my ex-wife moved out in August 2019... I was probably a little bit below what I would normally be. I was about 14 and a half stone. And now, as I said earlier, I'm about 17 stone, possibly a little bit less. I lost a little bit of weight for the wedding. That's a lot of weight to put on in a short space of time. Now, that could be happiness. Mm-hmm. It could be... And I, I'm also on some anti-acid reflux drugs, which partly, by the way, explains why I was so worried about whether I had COVID, because I think the reflux made me want to cough a little bit at times. Mm-hmm. And so it would come and go. And so I was constantly worrying, do I have a new continuous cough? Anyway, I don't know whether I, I asked my psychiatrist by email, whether the, the, the anti-anxiety drug was leading to weight gain. He said, no. Um, but I, you know, I, I, so I assume it did. So therefore I have to accept that it's, it's not, but I just felt losing weight has been a little bit more difficult. And I don't know whether it's to do with the anti-acid reflux drug. I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. But I just mentioned that in passing. More fundamentally, I would say, I think the edge has been taken off my ambition. And I was always very ambitious and very competitive. Mm-hmm. And in my world, you probably need a bit of that to get ahead because it is so competitive being a presenter. Mm-hmm. And I... And I, but at the same time, I don't know whether I'm just blaming a career hi- hiatus on that or using it as an excuse. It's really difficult to know which way around it is. I mean, it's well, no the bad thing, by the way, not to be... Well, the, um, the ambition, it's no, no bad thing to be less ambitious yeah. uh, necessarily. But on the other hand, you don't want to reach a point where you just accept things, that you do need to have an edge to, to push you on to get that next opportunity. And it seems at the minute you have to be called either Phil, Holly, Ant or Deck to present anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're in competition for the same sort of work. Don't they seem to present everything? Though? They'll be doing the five minutes soon. <laughs> if, if, you are, if you ask Piers Morgan, that's probably true. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So had you had anxiety before? Yes, good this? question. Yes. So I was very anxious as a child on and off, often about... about physical health but about uh, a bit about get, contracting stuff but had but, you suffered with anything as a child a lot about giving other people stuff no not no i used to think i was going to get give or get hiv from my brother's toothbrush 
You know, I, I thought I would get HIV Whoa. walking down the street from people breathing at me. Because you, you were an 80s child? Quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember those scary adverts, but yeah, I, I was I worried about getting HIV from kissing people and all, all sorts of things, and, and then worried about other STDs later on in life. And, you know, there was a lot of worrying about communication of harm. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't... At Cambridge, when I was doing my finals, just before my finals, I... Just to give you an example, I, there was an overhanging branch on one of the road, on the roads, on the backs behind the colleges, in between where, in, in between the university library and, and the colleges, and I suddenly started worrying that this was going to knock a cyclist off the bike. So I tried yeah. to rip it off, and only succeeded in making more of a stub. And I thought, well, if it's a particularly tall cyclist, so the stub would make would would create more resistance if they knocked into it, and might. I therefore may have made the situation worse rather than better. So then I was in a tight white T-shirt at the time. It was the summer. And I went to ask the college handyman whether he had a saw. So then if you were cycling along the backs or driving along the backs in the summer of 2022, you would have seen this sort of strange ginger-haired, tight white topped man trying to hack away at a tree with a saw, at a branch of a tree. And then that wasn't enough because I thought maybe I hadn't cured it. So I had to call the council and identify which tree it was. And this was literally a day before one of my finals exams. And mm. so my anxiety would often flare at points of high stress or high pressure. And was there any, from what you've described a few times, seems to be the protection of other people, other people coming first. Was there any deals that you were doing with yourself in your head? If I, if I protect people from that, then I will do good in my exam, for example. I suspect it was a bit more if I don't protect people from that, then I'll do badly. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ended up getting a first, so maybe my deal worked. But I definitely lost revision time through anxiety. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So, so I don't... It, it's been really difficult to try and get to the bottom of it. I, mean, I remember when I was doing my BBC documentaries, so the on the road with stuff. So I go on the road mm-hmm. with interesting people. And again, Mel McPherson was part of it, but... So was an Orthodox rabbi, an England cricketer, Tracy M. and Nigel Kennedy. Really privileged, brilliant access. Mm. And I would get very anxious at various, various stages of this. I remember seeing a hub at the hub of a wheel the night before I interviewed Elmut first, and I thought was overhanging on a on a sort on, on, on a sort of overpass. And I had to drive back at eleven o'clock at night to remove it in case it fell on someone below them. But then in the edit suite, I'd get I'd get anxious. Like, did did someone who didn't want to be in shot, had I got their fingernail in shot, would that would that be seen in Latvia if they came from Latvia? Would their, would their former pimp come from Latvia to England and find them and punish them because they've seen it on my... I mean, that sort of level of, well, ungenerously, I'd call it madness, but sort of OCD or hyper-anxiety. And I used to get very, very worried because we, we'd, we'd edit them for 10 hours a day from Monday to Thursday, and then there'd be Friday... And then they would go out on the BBC News Channel and sometimes BBC One or Two on the weekend and be seen by a lot of people. It was my name at the end of it. It was my face on it. I was the director, the producer, the presenter. And I just remember my picture editor, with whom I'm still very good friends. I mean, he sat through hundreds of hours in dark and edit suites with me, but still good friends and came to my wedding. And, and he said I had what he described as paradise syndrome. So he's like, we've got a great documentary here. Why are you trying to tear it apart? Because I'd like worry about whether we needed to go in and re-edit it and all the rest of it. So it was, it was, yeah, it was. It didn't make life easy. Definitely didn't make life easy. 
So it's 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 fascinating then to hear you talk about it, and then that, and then how that evolved in at the beginning of COVID. And it, I'd never had anxiety before I had COVID. Uh, we got COVID the beginning of twenty twenty one, so a year, nearly a year after. You know, it was it was around and known about, and um, and I'd never suffered anxiety before. And one day we were we were having to call an ambulance because I couldn't breathe, and the ambulance guy did all my measurements and stuff and told me that it was in my head, and I was like. What? I, I, what? And then since then, I, I do sometimes catch myself. I'm in bed now. In in bed. I'm in bed, <laughs> and I will be thinking, "Am I breathing?" And it's it, and then I go, "No, it's the anxiety. Of course, I'm breathing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be having this thought now." Um, yeah. So so it's funny how it manifests and shows in different ways. And yeah, I would say I haven't evolve. had many panic attacks. I remember I think after making a film with the then chief constable, the Greater Manchester Police, and. I was worried that somehow where he lived might have been exposed and it wasn't. But then I then I felt extremely anxious, started sweating and because I thought I'd lost the tape or something and was rushing around my flat and that was anxiety. You know, that was like a panic attack. Mm. But no, it's sort of tentative or if ever have had a problem with breathing. But I've seen people close to me who've had panic attacks and yeah, I think I think we should probably all know how to help people who experience them, or indeed help ourselves if we are to experience yeah. them. One one thing, obviously, I know this is a cliche, but and lots more work needs to be done. But podcasts like this, the work, the Telegraph, to its credit, and I don't share the Telegraph's politics largely, but the work, the Telegraph, people like Bryony Gordon in the Telegraph, me when I was working there a little bit. And other organisations have really helped destigmatise mental health. And I think that's one of the great things that Prince Harry did. I mean, he gets terrible trolling, doesn't he? And he hasn't got everything yeah. right, but he did a lot for mental health when he was when he was still part of the you know active royal family, mm. and probably since. And I think the more people talk about it, the more people like Alistair Campbell, and I know him a bit from interviewing him a lot, and don't agree with everything he says on Twitter, and I think sometimes he goes too far, but knowing that someone like that, a sort of stereotypical alpha male type, someone you would, in the past, absolutely not associate with mental health difficulties, knowing that he's been through that, must help people. Because it helps detoxify it, it helps take the shame away of it from it. Yeah, it's someone else that's on my wish list for the podcast, actually, Alistair Campbell, because I know... Um... Oh yeah, I'll recommend, it, I'll recommend to him that he does it. Yeah. You know, when I wrote my piece in the Telegraph, I wanted everyone to know that I, you know, if you met me in the boxing ring or the the rugby on the rugby field or whatever, you wouldn't know about it. About You're this such an health. interesting guy. You kind of do everything, and you've done everything. It's amazing to listen. to. I don't this. actually the boxing stuff. I don't actually hit people in the head, but I do train. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from the head. I've never. Done I've still. Boxing. I've still got. By the way, just uh, something that I sort of haven't resolved with my psychologist, and it's quite pricey. My psychologist. Mm. So at the moment, when I'm not doing as much work as I want to be doing, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. But one thing I haven't quite resolved, and I'm 42 and should have resolved it a long time ago, is kind of obsession with strength. Can I beat this person? Defend myself up. Can I defend myself? Can I beat this person up if they attack me? Am I as strong as this person? What if they attack me? Like it's bizarre. If I walk down the streets and I see a man, one of the things that goes through my mind is who's stronger or who would win in a fight. I've never hit anyone in my life and don't intend to. But I, 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 I love... it's going along in my head and it's completely bizarre. It's that, after the podcast, I would love, obviously not today, but I would love to speak to you about that. 
<laughs> well, I remember when my dad, when I was growing up, I wanted to be sure that my dad could defend me from anyone. Yeah. Like he could defend me from this teacher or he could defend me from an elephant. or And I was obsessed with who would win out of a bull or a lion. Like these are not, I say they're not normal, maybe people do go through them. But yeah, my, my and I think strangely, like doing weights or sometimes even doing the fight training I did, because that puts more of a focus on that part of you, like how strong you are or how well you can fight. Mm-hmm. That, that, that kind of maybe makes it worse. But it's, it's, you know, we live, it's, I've been trying to think more in my, on my own about this and where it comes from and why it exists. Like, I live in a city, so you live in, in, a, in a small part of North Wales. And mm-hmm. as I've said, I spend a lot of time in a small, even smaller part of Mid Wales. Yeah. But now, I, by most of my time, I live in the city. And, you know, I live with, in, in effect, eight, nine, ten million strangers. Mm-hmm. And when we started out in life, you know, millennia ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, there was a sort of a competition for life, wasn't there? And mm. so on some level, I don't know whether it can be genetic. I don't know if it's passed down through these millennia of generations, but what it is, but there's some level in which I think, gosh, you know, I've got to be able to defend myself and defend my family from potential attack because you're rubbing shoulders the whole time in a city with complete strangers, some of whom might not be very nice people, some of whom might be stronger than you, whatever. And You say so, that, though, defend your family from potential attack. Do you think any of that uh, has, has, has come from previous generations who had to defend themselves from, from, from potential attack? Well, it's very possible that it's linked to the fact that my grandparents were kicked out of their homes and kicked mm. out of their country by the Nazis. Mm. And I mean, that was my first thought when you were when you were saying this earlier. That was my first thought. Obviously, I don't know. It's it, it, it's you, but that was one of my first thoughts. One of the interesting things about therapy and talking about this sort of stuff is there are no, I don't think, definite answers. Yeah. So we can speculate. So we can say that might be the case, yeah. or that's worth exploring. Mm-hmm. But we're never going to be able to know for sure. No. And, and I don't know whether that's a limitation or not of therapy, but it's, 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 I think, worth pointing out. But one thing that certainly did have an impact on me, my grandfather, the concert pianist I mentioned earlier on my dad's mm. side, he didn't look stereotypically Jewish, or his friends didn't think he looked very Jewish, unless he wore a particular hat. Mm. And there was a specific street in pre-war Berlin. He was from Vienna, but he was playing the piano a lot in Berlin, I think. And it was this particular street where Jews used to get beaten up by the Nazis or the Nazi youth or whoever. Mm. And he didn't want to avoid the risk or the fate of fellow Jews simply because he happened not to be thought to look Jewish. So once a week, I think, he would put on his hat that did make him look Jewish to his friends and walk down that street, which was an act of defiance and bravery and solidarity. And I kind of mis, mis, misinterpreted that story as I was growing up and into adulthood. So to the point where if I've ever seen what I suspect is danger coming towards me or potential threat coming towards me on my side of the road, on my part of the pavement, I will never cross the road to avoid it because my attitude is, I'm not moving for you. My grandfather didn't move for you and I'm not doing it. Now, we don't live in Nazi Germany, so it's not a helpful way of thinking but I think it's certainly influenced by that it's not and it's really strange because I recognize that trait in myself and 
it goes the, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's human nature. We do stereotype like, and it's a safety mechanism from eons ago. You know, we, we, we might be walking down the street and see 10 hooded youths come towards us. So we, 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 we automatically assume that that could be dangerous. So we cross the road. I'm, I recognize it, 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 myself in what you've just said. I would purposefully stay on that side of the road, but I would be possibly terrified until I've passed them, but I will still put myself through that. I don't know why. I've just recognized it now when you've said it. No, I, I, you know, there's, a, there's another thing about this, which is that it's counterintuitive. And again, I'm no expert in human behavior beyond anyone else. But I think by being very confident and feeling a certain sense of belonging, where I am, and particularly feel that in my home city, mm -hmm. I perhaps project to others this sense that don't mess with that person because they're self-assured. No idea whether that's true or not. But I think all of this stuff is it, its just interesting psychologically. Where, where does it come from? Why is it there? Why have I not come to terms with it? Why have I not processed it properly? And as I become, as I move towards becoming a father in a couple of months, it's really important to me that I don't pass those sorts of negative traits onto my son. I can easily imagine sort of training him up to be a form, like a sort of Navy SEAL by the age of six. I've got to kind of be careful with that. I think you have something that's much better, if, if, if I may. I, I, I think we both have something that, that that I see in you and I see in me and that's that we're both quite tall but we're both I th I think quite smiley like a friendly vibe and I think that goes a long way I I'm thinking of you now at the party last week which obviously was the first and only time I've met you and and I and I think about what people say about me and that that's I don't know. I don't give off the fact that I'm a threat, and I don't think you did. You, 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 you made me feel that you were a warm person that could be approached, uh, that could be spoke to. That you were tall, smiling. You looked friendly. You looked, um, you just looked like someone that I could approach if I wanted to. And, I, and I'm glad I did actually because it was a really nice conversation. Um, you know, maybe that plays a part in it as well. In people not messing with us. <laughs> It's amazing what happens if you smile at people. Yeah. It's so disarming. Mm -hmm. Perhaps particularly if you're a bigger person because you naturally might carry a bigger initial threat. Mm. But I do remember someone who used to be was my boss at one of the jobs I had. And she said to me that you've got to be careful because you can, be, you can unintentionally come across as overbearing or, or too much. And so I think we have being self-aware is so important. Not to the point of endless self-scrutiny. All of these things you've got to get in balance. I think probably, but I th I, as well as being a smiley, warm, and gentle person, I can I can also put people's backs up, and I can be provocative, and I can be confrontational. Perhaps so. Yeah, being self-aware of that and getting it right. Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? How difficult it is to change yourself, like. I interviewed so many people for the How To Academy over the last few years about how to make your life better, essentially, I guess. Mm. And lots of sort of how-to kits available. Mm. And some stuff, I mean, I'm not, I don't tend to be a person for all that sort of stuff, but some, some of it you think as it passes you is quite, could be quite useful. But actually applying it and remembering it and integrating it into who you are or how you are is quite challenging. So for example, smiling, such an important thing. We know it's a good thing usually. Mm. 
you know, it can also probably get you into trouble in the wrong spaces, but I, I'm talking in generalizations, but smiling is a good thing. And I like to smile more and be friendlier more of the time. But remembering that as you go about life, if it isn't necessarily your default setting, can be quite difficult. Mm. Oh, I thought you'd gone then. Are you gone? No, no, I'm stroking, <laughs> stroking the younger of the two cocker spaniels. Who they have so, they give so much joy. I can't tell you. Absolutely. I mean, they really, really do. We had a bit of a dilemma actually. My mum passed away in February and left us with two. Uh, her two girls, Daisy and Rose, and they initially went to stay with my older brother, live with my older brother, who have who they have another dog, and Charlie uh, did something to his back. That's their other dog, and so they had to pass the girls on to us. So then we were left with four dogs, and I love them to pieces, and they were mum's pride and joy. So we were left in this in this dilemma. What, what do we do? Because we can't have four dogs because they're not getting the love and attention that they deserve. And nor am I too. You know, the boys. Thankfully, we've kind of... And mum didn't want them separating because they're mother and daughter and they've never been separate. But thankfully, we've decided that if one of them goes back to Matthews and one of them stays here, they can see each other all the time, but they get <laughs> to stay in the family because they really do mean the world to us, don't they? Our, 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 our pets, our, or they should do, you know. It's, it's, it's also a question of perspective. Yeah. Like, in my mum and dad's communal garden where I grew up, mm. they've now got a rule where dogs can't be off the lead on the weekends because I think there was a boom in dogs during the pandemic and people mm. have got to be able to picnic in peace or whatever. And now that I'm a dog owner, it sort of makes me furious. Whereas before, I'd be, what on earth are these dogs allowed off the lead? <laughs> like, it's so easy, isn't it? You have that something with some motorists, some cyclists, but, but and then as soon as, as you're on a bike, it's dogs. like the and what say again? Beaches ban dogs at certain times of the year, and I, and I tend all to look around yes. and see all the human waste, and I think it's not the dogs that are making the mess. No. <laughs> but we've had that locally with a with a public space where there's there are people who, who who are championing basketball, there are people who are championing dogs, people who are championing children. Mm. Like what? There's 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 a bar at the end of the road which which is making too, was until I complained make too, making too much noise on a Friday and Saturday night and yet I would have been one of those people who was making too much noise <laughs> you know not very long ago it's so funny isn't it how we we can become so intolerant of perfectly reasonable different yeah when your little boy is asleep you need that bar to be quiet exactly <laughs> listen uh, i would draw this to a close it has been such you are such a very interesting person and i really could ch chat to you all day um and i'm gonna chat to you when i stop pressing record for five minutes as well because i could talk to you all day but if, thank if i you could so say much. if i could say something it's been great great like. great fun talking to you and you're a really good listener and I, I which is a key part of being an interviewer I always remember interviewing Jon Snow, the former Channel 4 mm. presenter, Channel 4 News, when I was doing my five minutes of a series. And I said to him in the, in the middle of the interview, what's the key to a good interview? And he said, listening. Mm. And he said, so many people just come with their rote of questions and then someone gives an answer and they move straight on to the next question. And as soon as he'd made that important point, I then moved on to the next question I had in my mind. I never took notes. I never took notes in, but still. And that was quite cringe for me. That's but what I wanted to say, just really important, is that for, given that we've been talking about mental health, that hmm. I'm certainly not a mental health expert, but there is help out there. And do seek that help and do talk to people. Do open up mm -hmm. to people who you trust and who love you because it really does 
help and mm. it can put you on the right path. There's always hope, always, always, always hope. And I was in a truly, truly dark period of my life not very long ago. And although life isn't perfect by any means, as I said, I've still got lots of unfulfilled stuff to do in my career. I And who knows what com is coming down the road, but life is in a much better place now than it was, I don't know, 18 months ago so don't lose hope and do get help absolutely echo that amazing and thanks again thank you very much Matthew Statlin thanks for having me remember to reach out if you need to and if you can offer an ear to someone that needs it it could make all the difference I'm Richard Sefton and you've been listening to the State of Mind podcast thank you very much and I will see you very soon